How's it going, everybody? This is the second episode of the Fountainhead series, where I'll try to answer many questions that people have about the world today, such as, why is there such a disconnect between the stock market and the actual economy? Why is wealth inequality rising? What will the economy look like in 10 years? And of course, how can one prepare themselves for the future? Uh, And for reference, this is being recorded in November 2020. So, In the last episode, which is also the first episode, I talked about the rapid growth of technology and the high debt burdens faced by developed countries around the world as basically the two main drivers of the economy today. And of course, there are other main drivers, uh, such as COVID and the election and all this stuff. But I really believe that these two are the main forces that will affect uh, our lives for decades to come. And these are also two competing forces, remember, because technology is deflationary, makes the products that we buy and sell as well as our wages uh, cheaper every year. And that goes in contrast to um, what's good for debtors, what's good for governments, because it's easier for them to pay off debt uh, when there is a high amount of inflation. Um, So we left off yesterday, or last episode rather, with... Uh, basically the resolution that we're going to have to pay off a bunch of government debt in the, in the next 10 years. So the answer we're going to try and get at today is um, how do governments resolve periods of high debt? And of course, what is going to happen this time? So while almost every developed country is facing similar debt problems, I'm going to be focusing on the United States uh, just for simplicity. I mean, of course, um, Countries like Japan um, and the EU uh, have much higher uh, relative debt burdens, but um, they're all facing the same thing. So I think the United States will be a good proxy for all of these countries. Um, so to summarize some basic concepts, let's start by looking at how governments take on debt and how they can pay it off. Um, so when the government wants to spend money it doesn't have, the U.S. Treasury, which is part of the federal government, can borrow money by issuing government bonds. Um, This is very similar to the process of taking out a mortgage when you want to purchase a home, um, except in this case, it's with government. So um, for now, we're going to stick with that simple analogy. A term that is often used for taking on debt is called leverage. So when a government uses leverage, they're hoping that the money they borrow will create more than enough economic growth in the future to pay back their debt. This is why debt can be a good thing, and it's why we often look at a country's debt uh, relative to their GDP, or the debt-to-GDP ratio, instead of just looking at the gross amount of debt outstanding. So when a country's GDP rises faster than its debt burdens do, on a percentage basis, it's in good health and doesn't have to worry about becoming over-leveraged. A great example of this is China. Um, The amount of debt they have has multiplied over the past several decades, but the size of of their economy has as well. And so when you think about 20 years ago when they took on debt to fund some of these infrastructure projects or education, you name it, these have turned out to be very good investments because it's grown their economy so much that now they have no problem paying off this debt. As I mentioned last episode, the federal debt-to-GDP ratio of the United States stands around 135%. And this doesn't include the debt that has been taken on by individual states 
and municipalities. This number has been rising ever since 1980 and has gone parabolic since the onset of the COVID pandemic. This is an unsustainable trend. At some point, the United States and other countries will need to begin reducing their levels of debt relative to the size of their economies. This is known as deleveraging. Some of you may be thinking right now, oh, uh, the federal debt has been growing for decades, so why would governments deleverage now as opposed to putting off another 10 years? Like, I mean, our debt has been growing. Um, let's just take on more debt and see what happens. Um, but if debt burdens become too high, a large portion of government spending ends up being spent on interest payments. This year, in 2020, about 10% of government spending will be consumed by interest payments alone. So to put that in perspective, we spend less on education, on the environment, science, and transportation combined at the federal level than we do on interest payments alone. Now let's move on to how a country can go about paying off its debt when it has a bunch of debt racked up and it needs to deleverage. According to Ray Dalio, a well-known investor and economist, there are four ways that governments can deleverage. We'll briefly go through each of the four ways and then determine what is the most likely outcome in this situation. I will begin with the least likely, which is austerity. Austerity simply means implementing strict measures to cut spending in order to run a budget surplus and pay back debts. This is extremely unlikely to happen in today's world because austerity measures can have detrimental effects on the economy. Imagine, for example, if the U.S. cut all Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and defense spending. Now, this is a lot of spending cuts and would obviously destroy the economy. Sometimes the economy can suffer so much from austerity that governments end up being far worse off than before. So it's safe to say that we can rule this deleveraging method out for good. The second way to deleverage is to default on or to restructure the debt. Typically, when government is at risk of defaulting, bondholders will be willing to restructure the debt, which means offering lower interest rates or longer periods to pay back the debt and just sometimes more favorable terms to the borrower. They do this because it's better for investors to receive some form of compensation, however small than nothing. This method is also extremely unlikely for the United States because the risk of defaulting is effectively zero. 100% of U.S. debt is denominated in U.S. dollars, which can be printed by the Federal Reserve. Therefore, we can safely rule out this method as well. The third way to, de to deleverage is through a redistribution of wealth. Usually you'll see this in the form of much higher taxes on the rich, uh, capital gains taxes, corporate taxes, as well as transfer payments to the lower and middle class. Transfers of wealth typically occur in many forms, but rarely in amounts that contribute meaningfully to the deleveraging. The most extreme form of this would be something like a political revolution like we saw with Russia in the early 20th century. In most cases, this method is extremely harmful to the economy. For example, raising taxes, especially capital gains taxes, by too much would severely depress asset prices such, such as stocks and real estate. As a result, the government would actually end up receiving less tax receipts 
than with a lower tax rate. And not to mention this would also destroy uh, like pension plans and you know the social security payments uh, and the mandatory spending that the government needs to be making. In my opinion, although we have seen continued transfer payments to the poor and um, as we already have this year in the form of COVID payments, we are unlikely to see any meaningful rise in taxes on the wealthy and in capital gains taxes, regardless of you know the next administration. The fourth and final way for a government to deleverage is known as debt monetization. This is when the central bank prints money to buy the government's debt. Many of you have heard of QE, or quantitative easing. You can think of debt monetization and quantitative easing as two sides of the same coin. So quantitative easing has the intention of providing stimulus by injecting money into the economy. So it it's the it's the central bank purchasing or financing government spending. Debt monetization has the intention of financing fiscal spending. Both um, terms amount to exactly the same thing, uh, QE and debt monetization. The central bank prints money and then, the, and then purchases government bonds um, from investors who in turn receive newly minted dollars that are now free to circulate around the economy. If you haven't guessed by now, debt monetization is where we are headed and is the most likely way the United States and other countries will end up lowering their debt burdens. This is because the only form of deleveraging that doesn't directly harm anyone in the economy is through QE. Taxes aren't raised the debt isn't restructured, and government spending doesn't have to fall a penny. So most people are wondering at this point, um, I mean, you guys are probably asking one of two questions. The first is, if government spending doesn't decrease and taxes don't increase, how on earth would government debt burdens ever fall? We'll go more into this question in a future episode, but the short answer is that by printing money and purchasing bonds, the central bank can create inflation. Now, remember that inflation is a very good thing for someone in debt. If prices and incomes rise while the nominal value of debt stays the same, the government can collect more in taxes and lower its debt burden over the long term. This is exactly what happened after World War II. So the government, um, the U.S. government and you know every country in Europe and Japan and Germany, they spent a shit ton of money in World War II and had extreme debt burdens. And how are they going to pay off that debt? Well, they lowered interest rates, they created inflation, and in the decades that followed, they effectively inflated away their debt. Now, the second question you may be asking is, if debt monetization doesn't directly harm anyone, then who ends up paying for it? Isn't this too good to be true? The answer to this question is a point of contention among many people today. Again, we'll go into more detail about the indirect effects of debt monetization in the future, but the short answer is that in addition to the explicit taxes that you pay on income, there is an implicit tax that occurs on everyone that owns dollars when inflation happens. And I'm not talking about you know dollars like in stocks, I'm talking about dollars as in cash or in money in the bank. because. When the central bank prints trillions of dollars to monetize the government's debt, the resulting inflation will harm anyone who has savings in dollars because 
the purchasing power of those dollars fall. If you listened to the previous episode, you'll remember that things are a bit more complicated because technological advancements have actually been pushing prices and incomes down, causing deflation. So despite the more than $3 trillion that have been printed in 2020, and I believe we're about to get more, uh, the official inflation rate has not risen an inch. This has led many to support policies such as modern monetary theory, which will be the topic of our next two episodes. And if you haven't heard of modern monetary theory yet or don't know what it is, get ready because in all likelihood, we will see it come into the mainstream in the coming years. So thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. Um, If you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out. And I'm really looking forward to doing more episodes just like this.